fish on. Hey, Radcast is on. Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. From the Porter's 10Cast Studio, here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Welcome to another episode of Radcast Outdoors. I'm your host, Patrick Edwards, and believe it or not, I don't have David in the studio today, and the reason for that is he's up playing in the Northwest Territories, way up towards the North Pole, and he's traipsing around trying to find a doll sheep with his dad, so... I hope David is having fun and that his feet haven't fallen off yet, Um, but we will be having him back here soon. Um, But today, I have the immense pleasure of introducing a guy that I've wanted to visit with for years. Um, He's very well known in North America and across the world for muskie and pike fishing. Um, He was named by Outdoor Life Magazine as one of the top 20 anglers on the planet. You've probably seen him on Outdoor Life TV and a number of other channels on YouTube, um, doing stuff with Bass Pro Shop, Eagle Claw, Clam Outdoors, you name it. But Mr. Pete Mana, thank you so much for coming on to talk about muskies today. Yeah, well, I'm glad to be here, I have to say. Thanks for inviting me. And Actually, I wouldn't really mind traipsing around with David up there. That kind of sounds like fun, what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I th- we should talk muskies, but I, I like to hunt too, so that sounds like quite an adventure he's on. Yeah, and you know, he's he's super amped up about it. He About a week beforehand, I think he started losing sleep, kind of like you and I do before we go on muskie trips, and you know, he's <laughs> super amped up about it, so uh, he's, he's on his way now, and you know, he talks about for the hunter, kind of the ultimate experience is going after those doll sheep. And I could say, you know, for freshwater angling, I would say the ultimate is going after muskies. Yeah, I was just going to say that's a pretty good comparison right there. Right? right. So, and you've you've been doing this for many, many years and doing it really well. Um, like I said, I've enjoyed reading your articles and, um, you know, just tell them, Tell us all just the story of, you know, where you grew up and how you got into muskie fishing. Well, uh, uh, lucky guy, I was born in Chicago, but six months old, my folks decided to buy a resort in Hayward, Wisconsin on the Spider Lake, chain of lakes here. And they owned that and ran it for 11 years. And in those days, it was, you know, fishing period. I mean, there was no recreational activity. That's what everybody did. And uh, so I grew up on a, on a fishing resort. And, you know, the rest, I guess, was up to God. I just, I was wired, you know, uh, to fish. I mean, uh, you know, you, you knew it early on. If I was ever in trouble as a kid at the resort, it was because I was fishing instead of <laughs> doing what I was supposed to be doing, my little chores. Uh, yeah, it's just, uh, and, and I gotta say, it's kind of interesting, uh, on that topic. My dad, Tex, and I were fishing about a week ago, and we're on a little lake, and, and I kind of talked to my dad about it. I compared myself, obviously, quite a few years prior to this little girl, dad, mom working in the yard, this, that, and this, this little gal sitting on a dock, and she was fishing. And I mean, she was sticking right to it and catching her own. I She couldn't have been more than five years old. And she was taking her own fish off, baiting her own hook, <laughs> and sitting there catching fish. And I thought, yep, yeah. <laughs> I can certainly understand that. Yep. Because uh, that's, 
yeah, you know, I, I think you're just wired that way, and that was definitely me uh, early on. And the last year of uh, my dad owning the resort, I actually did my first guiding. He had a uh, uh, guide cancel for whatever reason, and uh, told the guy, I said, well, my kid's got a strong back, and he knows a few spots. Of course, it was rolling in those days. That's where the strong back comes in as far as boat position. And <laughs> I went out and guided somebody and, and, and the guy actually caught a muskie and gosh, I was hero. I got a pocket knife for a, for a tip and a little bit of money. I don't, I was more concerned about the pocket knife than the money at the time. I thought that was pretty neat, but Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of was the start of it. And then, uh, a few years later we had moved, but I, I got a, a job guiding in the summers at a at a fishing resort where the boat and stuff was provided and and I could just ride my bicycle over there so I started guiding at that age and uh was supposed to go to college decided that wasn't a very good thing to do I'd rather fish so I just kept on kept on guiding with no specific plan necessarily other than you know I wanted to I wanted to fish and guide and uh, you know I understood that I had to figure out how to make a living doing that. So I, I fished and, and, and guided like crazy, uh, did a lot of other things for the first 10 years. Of course, you don't have any money and you're buying lures as fast as you can. And <laughs> so I, uh, I, I trawled concrete and, and pounded nails and, uh, you know, did a little bit of everything from, you know, bartending to <laughs> whatever. <laughs> And it just kind of, I, I, I never had a grand plan, but I was able to do pretty well with it. By the time I was uh, 19, I really had, I was on my own then and had was pretty much booked up uh, that early already. I, I, I did pretty well. And, and then I kind of pushed myself because personally the muskies were the hardest thing to catch. I had enough business and I, I personally got more interested in that and kind of took it on as a challenge. And I switched over to, uh, with the exception of uh, the month of May, muskies only, uh, after that with my clientele. And that, you know, I, I think that was that was just kind of it, the, you know, that, that single decision and taking on that challenge and, and uh, and basically fishing 16 hours a day every day, uh, I caught a lot of fish and and got recognized. I, I you know I kind of got to the point of where if anybody came to the Hayward, Wisconsin area to muskie fish, they you know the resorts would say, well if you want to catch a muskie, this young guy he's got a lot of hair, but he he sure catches them, and and uh, <laughs> it all just uh, it, it kind of went from there, uh, you know the having television opportunities and seminars and I was asked to start writing articles which I found pretty unbelievable it uh it was interesting because I uh, ignored typing classes in high school and then I literally had to teach myself to type because I'd never taken a course (laughs) and uh yeah it was just kind of a gradual progression but you know in, in reality it was all you know, just the you know the way I was raised and the way I was wired to uh, to fish and enjoy the outdoors in general. I guess. Yeah, and I, I'm glad you brought that up. As far as like, you know, I think people get bit by the musky bug, and 
the reason I say that is and I have not caught a true muskie yet uh, just because we don't have access to them really here um, in Wyoming. But, you know, catching hybrids, there's something about catching those fish that it, it ruins you. And that's what Danny Curla told me. He said, you catch one of these things, it's going to ruin you. Because something, there's like a switch that goes off in your brain of that was really cool. That was really fun. I want to do that again. And so I have a feeling for you, it's kind of the same thing, right? Yeah, it, uh, it, it was interesting. I, I had no real favorite, uh, the, the high school days guiding. I, you know, I, I did everything and, you know, crappies and walleyes and bass and were good enough for me as, as, as muskies, but there was something that just kind of snapped, uh, when I, you know, when I got out on my own and I, you know, I was in a position being busy enough anyway to, to kind of switch over. And then what that, what that allows you to do too, just like anything else, if, you know, if, if you're playing, you know, 14 different sports, but then all of a sudden you suddenly concentrate on one when you're just completely targeting that, that, that single species and, and following everything that happens, uh, and, and trying to piece it all together. Uh, yeah, you just, you just really do get dialed. And I, and I do have to say that in those days, it was, it was really a lot different. I mean, uh, the technology and the information and everything has changed so much that, you know, when I, when I look at it now and I look back then, uh, it, it would be really hard to stand out, uh, these days because there's so many really good anglers out there, you know, mm-hmm. any, anybody that's fired like, you know, I was, and, and I'm sure you are and Danny is, uh, you know, they're, they're out there and they're good. The, the, the level of the average angler is, is really pretty exceptional these days. Back then, uh, it was, it, it was a lot easier to stand out, to be honest. Uh, you know, there were one of the, one of the things that seems simplistic these days was I would, I would fish oddball spots and there weren't a lot of people targeting fish on mid lake reefs and especially deeper stuff, deeper rocks and that kind of thing. It was more or less just the, not saying anything bad against anybody, but they, you know, it was more or less shoreline fishing and, and, uh, so, if you if you were really going at it like I was and really kind of exploring the limits uh, in a lot of a lot of bodies of water around here, I was I was literally doing some things that nobody else was doing just structurally. And then when you're putting in those kind of hours targeting that that one species all the time, uh, that you know that really made a big difference, no doubt about it. Yeah, and. I don't know if you can touch on this a little bit, but muskie fishing is not the same as, you know, going rainbow trout fishing or walleye fishing or anything like that. It's a, it's a different ball game. And so I don't know if you could speak to that a little bit, just how different it is than other styles of fishing. Well, it's just, you know, I mean, one of the, one of the biggest things that you know, differentiates it, I guess, is just the, you know, the, the low density of the animal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that's the, the, the hardest thing about muskie fishing is the day-to-day patterning because there's there's so few out there you 
you can't necessarily try a lure, you know, for five minutes and say anything, right? I mean, uh, it's it, it, it's a whole different ball game in in that respect. Or or try a certain type of structure for a half hour and say, well, they're not on the rocks. You try a couple of rock spots, or they're you know, you try a green cabbage, red cabbage, whatever. Pick your wheat type. Uh, you know, give that a try and, 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 and hoping to either find out that they're there or hoping to eliminate it as, uh, you know, a place where muskies are hanging and active on that particular day. It just, it just requires so much more time, uh, from that standpoint of, of patterning everything about it. And then you get into lure types and you get into the speed uh, you know, do they like a fast retrieve, a slow retrieve? Are they in the mood for erratic stuff and certain depth levels? Uh, you know, top water. You know, there's there's just a tremendous uh, amount of different options. And when you're dealing with a low density critter, it's just harder to put all those pieces together. And I would say that you know, if there was a a, a single thing that I you know that I got to be really good at with all of the hours on the water. It, it it was that that alone is just the 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 day to day stuff of trying to figure out where they are and and maybe where the active ones are. I I, I really believe in that as well. I mean, at times I think you're you're probably fishing over muskies in a lot of cases, but there's there's certain patterns to where the active fish are. are are going and what they're feeding on for whatever reason. I think that's one thing, even with all the technology and stuff that we have these days, that that one particular point will probably never figure out completely what it is that that triggers the active fish in the system on a given day. Even a real tough day, I think there's there's always something. Is there's always a way. It's always possible to to catch one if you if you find the right pattern. You, if you find the group of fish that are active and then unfortunately you also got to figure out what it is if uh, you know that's that that's triggering them on a, on a tough day like that the reality is you do get the perfect weather at times and those are those rare days where everything's just going right and then you know a lot of times there's really not even a pattern structurally to a certain extent and 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 when they're hot it's it's weird they can be so hard to catch but you know, at times it almost seems like you could throw your sock in the water and and and, and catch one. You know, there 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 are days where there is really no particular pattern on lure type. You know, on my guiding days, I one of the things I learned early on: you never start a day regardless of what happened the day before. You don't you don't start a day with everybody throwing a bucktail, even if the day before you caught them all on bucktails. And, uh, and, and I would always, I would always start off with, you know, the guy in the front using what I thought in my head from prior experience and current weather was the highest percentage lure that they're most likely to bite and kind of go on down the line. And the, and the guy in the back of the boat, which was always me, I guess I would, I would just be trying different things to kind of, to kind of test the waters. And you go through the, go through that process every given day of trying to figure out what they're in the mood for, where they're located. And, uh, you know, these days, in a lot of cases, you can actually see them with, with side imaging and stuff like that. But, you, you know, in a lot of cases, you you might know fish are there, but they're just, they're just literally not active. Uh, you know, sometimes you actually can see that visually 
uh, in some cases in clear water and sight fishing. There's there, there's fish you just can't make a move, and you know you gotta. That's a pattern you gotta forget about and try and try something else, find something else where where those fish may be willing to eat. So it's a it's a chess game all the time. To me, that's that's one of the funner things about it, though. As tough as they are and frustrating as they are at times, uh, you know, just that just that challenge of trying to figure out what's going on, and then combine that with uh, you know potential feeding windows, probable feeding windows, which is uh, you know barometric pressure changes and uh, and moon and lunar influences. And take full advantage of of those kind of things when they when they do occur. I mean, that's that's the other that's kind of the next level of uh, of being real effective out there on the water. Because in in a lot of cases, there's a, there's a lot of long hours where where fish are pretty tough. But if you got them located, you got things dialed in a little bit, and then you have a window of activity open up. Uh, being being aware of of everything about it and, and knowing it's a window so that you're you're maximizing that that time period to catch as many of those fish as you can i mean catch them and you you want to enjoy the moment maybe get a quick picture and that kind of thing but boy you got to get right back at it and you gotta you gotta <laughs> be on the same pattern i learned a long time ago boy it, especially it's more common if you're on bigger water but uh, if there's a probable window coming whether it be a predictable uh, lunar lunar activity or barometric pressure changes, you know, you do not want to be driving down the lake on a long run during, you know, and in a lot of cases, especially in big water where the water's rough, you can, you can take a 30-minute run. Well, if you do that at the wrong time, you're not paying attention to things, you, you may completely miss a good feeding window mm-hmm. because you decided, well, I didn't catch anything in there. I'm going to drive to this spot over here, but it takes you a half hour to get there and you miss the whole thing. So, so for muskies, things that come together with it. Yeah. So for muskies, what's the, you know, for barometric pressure or moon phases, what do you typically look for there? Well, uh, you know, the, generally the, the dropping barometer is better. A moving, a moving barometer is, uh, is to me, gen- just in general better, but, uh, you know, I, I, I like to see a front frontal activity coming in and preferably fairly slow and obviously not electric that's uh <laughs> yeah that's always a tough one to deal with but uh, yeah. you know that's that's usually the uh the ideal situation and generally uh the feeding window is going to come prior as that barometric pressure is jo- dropping and you see the front moving in that that's generally going to be the time but in a lot of cases too it'll be after and that's one thing that people should remember if if you do get you know generally this is more common with the with the fronts that that have some electricity to them uh one thing about it if you if you bail and that's a smart thing to do there's no sense getting hit to catch a fish but uh trying as soon as you think it's safe uh you know if you're if you're you know at the boat landing or you know at your dock or whatever you know try and get right back out again especially if you didn't experience a feeding window prior if there was a if there was a front coming in and nothing happened prior odds are there's going to be a window after and 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 that's something i learned that uh you uh you obviously still want to be safe but as, as soon as you think you are safe get back out there and get after it because in a lot of cases that window will come after now 
when you get the uh, weather, in my opinion, trumps uh, lunar stuff. No doubt about it. Right. Uh, I I generally don't pay much attention to the lunar stuff when you've got crazy weather, when you've got frontal activity all day. I don't even necessarily worry about it. I'm just trying to play the weather. But when you got steady weather, uh, it doesn't matter if it's you know sun or clouds or whatever. But if everything's if everything's fairly steady, the wind direction is steady, uh, speed the the whole nine yards. Those are generally the days where you really want to pay attention to that lunar stuff. Uh, you absolutely do not want to be taking that long run uh, uh, when the moon's underfoot or, or rising setting. Uh, you definitely want to make sure you're on spots. And, and, you know, a lot of people are pretty persnickety about uh, lunchtime or whatever time eating. You know, if it's uh, <laughs> the moon sets at right right dead on noon. Don't be eating the sandwich then, unless you're trolling. Make sure you got a line in the water. <laughs> yeah, I know for walleyes, the t- typically when it's a full moon phase and the moon's just starting to crest, that's typically when I get a lot of hits in pretty rapid succession as they start to feed. And uh, it's it's again yeah. one of those things where you better have your line in the water. You're gonna miss out on the best bite, and it may last ten minutes and be over, you know. And so it's important to to be ready. So th- yeah, that's good insight. I was I was curious what you thought about that. And um, another thing, just to shift gears just a little bit, is it just anecdotally for me, it looks like more people are beginning to kind of get that musky bug and that musky fever and, and pursue muskies, especially for catch and release. And so why do you think it is that there's, and maybe you see a different trend, but is that true that more people are doing it and, and why would that be? Oh yeah, absolutely. There's, there's no doubt more doing it to the point of actually being surprising. If, uh, if I would have guessed 20 years ago that, there would be this many people doing it and that much interest, uh, I, you know, I, I, I would have thought no way, to be real honest with you. And, uh, part of it's, uh, I think to a certain extent, uh, hype and, and social media, <laughs> I think may, may have something to do with it too. There's something about that mystique that you talked about at first of the toughest fish to catch and all of that and I and I and I do think that you know when people people are looking around on social media yeah it's nice to see a walleye it's nice to see a bass but all of a sudden they see somebody holding a great big toothy critter and they just you know (laughs) something clicks and you know it's ego or whatever combination of things hit you the the, the least interest you go that's a big fish and boy it's got a whole bunch of teeth be kind of nice to catch one of those and and it it's one of those things that it's not for everybody. It's kind of interesting over the years, all the guiding and, and stuff I've done. Uh, there, there were people that were out in the boat and really seemed to enjoy it and that kind of thing. But the, you know, the bug doesn't hit everybody. Right. And, you know, there's, there's some that'll go right back to, you know, mainly bass fishing or mainly walleye fishing and, and that type of thing. But other people, it, you know, it hits them like it hit me and, 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 other folks like Danny, you know, you just kind of go, Ooh, you know, this is, you, you focus in on it. And, and then in a way, I don't know if I should be happy for him or feel sad. He <laughs> 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 get kind of, kind of addicted to it. And, uh, and it, it, in a way that is sad 
to a certain extent. I've in recent years, I got to say, I've I've backed off a bit and actually been able to enjoy, you know, bass and walleye and other stuff a little more. That I, you know, that I don't have to be catching muskies only, and and uh, and I've really gotten back to enjoying all types of fishing just a little bit more. I've always enjoyed it all. You know? Yeah. People get to taking it personally. If, if if it hits you like that, it is an obsession. There's no doubt. You buy too many lures. You spend way too much time and money doing it. But there's something about it that that just hooks you. And I still to this day, you know, when people say, "Well, why did you pick them?" and and what about muskies? Is still really got. Yeah, I I will say it's it's different with all other species in freshwater anyway. Uh, you know, I, I enjoy them and, and truly love bluegills and crappies and, and I find myself giggling and having a great time, but the muskies shock you and part of it's that <laughs> low density thing. And there's, there's something about that with all of the fish I've caught, you still get excited. There's that, that rush because you, you haven't seen anything for hours. There, you know, there's something about that, and then all of a sudden, here's the big, big fish, and 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 there they are. And I had to laugh. It was literally just three days ago. I haven't been doing much musky fishing because of the heat over the summer here, but I just, just toyed with them a little bit here uh, uh, the last few days, and I had a fish come up on a topwater lure, a, a glider bait, and. I've seen this before in calm water where they just kind of suck it and literally pull it down. And I hadn't seen a fish in, I don't know, three hours. And <laughs> that fish, I was convinced had it, and <laughs> I set the hook and pulled it away from it. Yep. And I thought, after all these years, you should know better. <laughs> <laughs> they still do it to you. You know, they yep. they freak you out, and that's the, that's the part I love about it. So there's a... A similar story I have the f- the very first encounter I had with with muskies was with hybrids here in Wyoming and we had a lake that the water is super clear I mean you can see 30 feet you know 40 feet down I mean really crystal clear water <clears throat> and so I went there and I was trying to catch my first tiger muskie and I had I'd been using a bait that Danny had recommended and I, and I was working it and I saw this big dark thing behind my lure and I mean, it just looked like a, kind of like a log out there floating. And I was twitching that lure and it came a little bit closer to the boat and that, that log just kept falling. And then I realized it was a tiger muskie and he just sat there next to the boat looking at me. And I, my adrenaline was just through the roof at that point. And I was so frustrated cause he wouldn't hit it. And he was probably, you know, 38, 40 inches, something like that, but he just wouldn't hit it. So, um, fishing in another hour, haven't seen another fish. I throw into this spot and I'm working the lure back and I see this muskie come charging after it. And it was a nice one. And the, the lure was on the surface cause it was a top water lure. Same thing. I saw him come up, but his mouth was open and I didn't wait for the, the weight of the fish on the lure. And I set the hook and I pulled it right out of his mouth. And that, because I, because I couldn't go again. I was in high school. I couldn't go again for like another year to go tiger muskie fishing. That seriously bothered me for a year. Like it, it drove me nuts that I had done that. I had pulled it out of his mouth. I was so mad at myself. I was so frustrated, but they do that to you. They do it. It's just, it's crazy. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. but I mean, I think that's part I can of tell you this. 
Yeah, go ahead. Go, go ahead. Okay. I, yeah, I, I can tell you this. I, I, I guess I don't know exactly how old you are, but the, one of the few good things about age, it doesn't bother you, quite, or at least in my case. <laughs> I don't like it when I embarrass myself and do things like the story I just told you, but you know, I've been doing it so many years, but yeah, it, it, it used to, I'd, I'd lay awake at night, you know, and lose a big fish or, mm-hmm. or mess one up where you, that, that always has bugged me back then and, and still to this day when you, when you didn't do anything wrong and you wouldn't have done it any different if you had it to do over again, well, that's fishing, right? But yeah. when you, when you did something wrong that you should know better and that, uh, and if you combine that with a real big one and you don't get it because of your own stupidity that's that's kind of hard to take it really is yeah <laughs> yeah it is and you know especially you know i knew i wasn't going to have another opportunity for quite a while and it just killed me i mean that night i didn't sleep i was so mad and i just kept having visions of that fish you know swimming off after that and i was like oh man oh, yeah. i can't believe i did that but you know, that's, that's part of what makes you also go back and try to do, you know, better the next time. So, um, but I do want to ask you that because there are so many people getting into the sport, one of the things that I have a hard time watching is, you know, people think I'm going to go catch a muskie and these hybrid muskies to me seem like they're a little bit easier to catch. Um, they're, they're a little bit more ready to just hammer something. I think it's the pike side of them that gives them that. I mean, they're just, they're always looking for something to eat, it seems like. But they, you know, people catch one, but then they realize, okay, now I've caught this thing, and I don't know how to unhook it without getting hooked by these huge hooks or these teeth, and I, and I don't know how to, you know, to handle this fish properly. So you see people grabbing them incorrectly or holding them in a terrible position, keeping them out of water too long. So, you know, what advice would you give to the, the person that wants to go pursue muskies what what advice do you give them before they go out and actually try to catch one well that that's real important uh without a doubt and and to a certain extent you know somewhat of a frustrating topic i guess in a way because it seems like uh uh, a, a lot of people don't want to take that preparation, and I guess I, I guess I understand it because the, the desire to catch the fish and get the hot lure and, and this kind of thing is, uh, you know, is more exciting than the whole idea of, you know, trying to be responsible and, and really learning how to handle the fish and be prepared for the whole situation. There really isn't enough of that, and as, as much as I've talked about it over the years, I uh, you know I, I feel like I haven't done enough, and, and we should all we should all do a little bit more on that. But this is a very true statement, and as someone who's done this for a lot of years, and for the past thirty years, I've been able to make my living. I've been blessed. I've been able to make my living solely uh, off of fishing in the fishing industry, mm-hmm. and. And I, I, I was smart enough. To, I'm not the smartest guy on earth, but I was smart enough to realize that you know what what I was really seeking way back then. You're trying to find those spots where other people aren't fishing, like I mentioned, but also you know bodies bodies of water that are that are good. That that frankly up your odds. 
that are healthy, healthy fisheries. It doesn't matter how good you are. You're really only as good as the health of the fishery that you're fishing. So I often say when I get on the conservation topic when I'm doing seminars, and I, I start off with a lot of you probably think this topic is boring, but this is actually the most important thing you can learn to catch more and bigger fish. And it's absolutely true, is that beyond the lures and the electronics and all of the different stuff, you really need to be good at the handling the fish and be prepared to land them, have the proper tools, which includes a good net mm -hmm. with proper mesh and all of the all of the tools that you need to really you know uh, handle it and get that fish off properly and quickly and then uh and then also know how to how to hold a fish properly if you want to get some photos but you know just for any for any part of it uh, a, a proper hold is important so you still got to get the hooks out of the fish get them out of the net and back into the water even if you're not planning on taking a picture so it's it, it's always been surprising to me to a certain extent of how many people will actually go out and, and pursue muskie or northern pike or I guess maybe in a way any species uh, without having any idea or or practice or research on, on what a what a proper hold is and the, and the fact that a supported hold uh, for any species and the bigger they are and the heavier they are the more important that becomes to uh, be aware of how to get a proper gill hold and use a supported hold in a horizontal position as opposed to just dangling vertical uh, with a gill hold or uh, on some kind of a holding device. Uh, all, of the, all of those things are, are extremely important. Just to go over the tools real quickly for muskie, the, the, some of them seem fairly common sense, but uh, uh, definitely pliers, a couple of a couple of pairs of needle nose pliers, and in the case of uh, musky fishing, I recommend getting them big. I mean, the the farther away that uh, you, you can stay from the teeth, and then if the if the fish does ingest the lure a little bit, of course the musky's mouth is big, and you know you may need to go down into the mouth four to five inches to get at the fish. In the case of a really or the bait, the hooks. In the case of a really big musky. So you want to get a minimum of 11-inch pliers and uh, preferably even 14-inch pliers uh, to be able to get at those hooks. And, and one thing that a lot of people don't think of that's extremely important is uh, is cutters. You've got to have hook cutters, quality hook cutters that are going to be able to cut hooks up to 7 aught. There's just, you know, we've got some really big baits that are used for musky fishing these days, 7 aught, 8 aught hooks. And there's, there's other items out there, but, but still to this day, I believe the absolute best tool is the uh, Nipex uh, cobalt cutters. Uh, they, they will cut anything, and they last long, it's all the way up to, uh, you know, eight and even ten-odd hooks, you know, something that will be able to cut those hooks. Now, one, one thing that's not real popular with musky fishing, uh, yet you, you could probably get away without cutters if you're, if you're willing to go barbless. Uh, right. that, m most people still fish with barbs these days, but uh, if, if you went barbless, most likely you probably won't need cutters. I I still recommend it. 
period. But uh, they, with these bigger hooks and barbs, they, they can get stuck in there pretty good. And then you've got, uh, obviously, areas that you do not want to yank a barbed hook out, even if even if you're able to get at it and do it. And those areas would be anywhere near the, the, the gill area. Gill arches themselves are where the gills join with the lower jaw there. Uh, obviously, in the eye, any anything like that, that's where... That's where going barbless actually really helps there. But uh, if you if you have a barbed hook, if you're using barbed hooks and they're near any critical area like that, if I see a fish coming in before it's even netted, and I see a hook in or near an eye or in or near that gill area anywhere, immediately my brain I'm I'm telling somebody we we're going to need the hook cutters before that fish even gets netted. That's just should automatically register that that's, that's what you want to do because you definitely don't want to tear barbs back out of any kind of areas like that. And then if you do catch, you know, let's say you've got a bait with like five-aught hooks and you catch a smaller muskie or a smaller northern pike or hybrid, whatever it is, that you, you don't want to damage that fish. If, if uh, you know, in the corner of the mouth, obviously that's that's jaw strength right there. Well, on a, on a smaller fish especially, uh, with the bigger barbed hooks, if you just grab that with the pliers and yank it out, you may disfigure that. And, and uh, you know, there's it's not saying it's going to kill the fish, but, it, you know, it, it could definitely affect it as far as jaw strength and eating. So you, you should really be really be aware of that. Any, any Anybody that's going out with, with, with bigger baits and bigger hooks uh, should, should have a bolt cutters without any doubt at all. Yeah, and the other thing too is, especially this time of year, you alluded to it a little bit earlier. The heat can absolutely kill those fish just because it's it's so hot. And if you're prolonging the fight on the fish or keeping them out of water, it's it's also really detrimental. Can you touch on just some of the best practices for July and August? Yeah, yeah, that's that's actually a, a big topic. It's been a big one this year because of the at least in our region here, uh, real high heat early on. And, and we've really had some, uh, well, we had about three weeks of, in my opinion, totally unsafe conditions to even fish for them. Uh, there's, there's something about it, and I've never, uh, you know, I've never been big on trying to explain the science of it because there's a lot of different factors that can come in. Originally, we hear about uh, lactic acid buildup and, uh, and, and lower dissolved oxygen in the surface and, I, I I think fish when their metabolism is higher, and of course they're cold-blooded critters. So when the water's warmer, the warmer it gets, the higher their metabolism is. I think they require a lot more oxygen, and 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 there's something about fight stress and these different things. But I I I just know getting totally beyond the science with all the experiences that I've had is in in my region, my latitude anyway. Uh, when when I get up to starting the lower 70s, I'm thinking, okay, already we need to definitely try and, and minimize the fight time and, and time out of the water. Uh, I, I, I tell people that it's most likely safe to still fish for them from the mid-70s on up to 80. There's no, you know, there's no exact rules to a certain extent. You've got to see how the fish are reacting if you're kind of pushing the temperature limits. The fish are telling you how they're dealing with things. You can, 
you can tell by the way they, if, if you're doing it, and I would definitely not recommend to anyone new to the sport to start fishing right in the hot water. Uh, right. that, that, that's just really kind of a recipe for disaster. You want to definitely uh, uh, start in, uh, in, in the lower ranges where the fish are going to be a little more healthy. But after you've handled a few, you, you can literally see by the way the fish react uh, by the time you've, you've unhooked them, and if you go through the process of actually holding one up for a photo and then dropping them back in the water, they're, they're in, in a lot of cases, in these higher water temperatures, you can just tell. They don't even want to stay upright. Uh, they, if, if you do hold them upright, they're, they're not going to want to paddle off, and you've got to spend a long time reviving, or worse, worse that could happen is they may actually die on you right there but but in in those upper 70 ranges i personally got to where i do water release only and i refuse to have any uh hold up photos or anything like that a release a release picture is, is actually is actually just fine and uh and and that's where i generally will actually go barbless for sure and just kind of shake them off by the side of the boat in my personal experience in our area the 80 degree range and and i should specify this don't be immediately panicked if you see like 78 or 80 degrees in a situation where you've got extremely calm water and a blazing sun type of thing you can get false readings this should be where you figure the you know the upper part of the water column is all in that range, which is what we experienced. We had uh, we had uh, the top the top fifteen twenty feet of the water column was was up in the high seventies uh, this this year in June right away, and that you know mm-hmm. when when they can't get out of that that temperature, and especially if you bring them up from deeper cooler water uh, into that, it's it's just really a shock factor. Now I. I've talked with a lot of uh, people, too, that fish down a little bit further south. It makes sense to me that, you know, maybe the, the 80 plateau is kind of what I've set for myself. But in areas like Tennessee or Kentucky or, you know, wherever, if, if, the, if the average water temperature is higher in general over the course of the summer, it, it makes sense to me that, those fish acclimate to that and you know maybe you know i I, i'd never like to say there's absolutely a set temperature for all areas but observe the fish and 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 read the fish as as the way they're reacting to the fight and and any handling as the water temperatures are warming And, and frankly it's all it's always told me over the years when it's it's just time to start being careful or time to stop I mean, you you can tell the way the fish reacts to it, and uh, it, it's just not worth it to you know to me anyway to take a chance on uh, on killing the fish. And then when when the water's real hot, you're you're just going to I, I don't care who you are, <laughs> you will not you know you will not be able to successfully release a lot of these fish. The other thing that I should point out is just because you have a fish swim away does not mean that fish is okay. I found that out the hard way years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was first really experiencing that, I had, I had been observing the way the fish react. I'd had one die, and then I went to a uh, uh, no-hold-up policy, all-water-release policy, and I still 
had, you know, fish that seemed lethargic, just not recuperating well, not swimming off strong. I had one that swam off after reviving it for a while, and it swam off. It definitely went down. It definitely stayed down. I hung around for a half hour, went about my day, came back the next day. The fish had particular markings. I know I found my fish the next day dead, floating. Mm-hmm. And I've found out since and talking to a lot of a lot of guys, biologists about this, and then uh, one good buddy of mine, Mark Thorpe, that's been involved in a multitude of uh, tracking studies uh, out in Quebec and uh, where they've literally had transmitters in these fish and stuff. So they know they can follow them around. And, and in uh, that, that same temperature range that I was talking about where I say you really got to be careful, uh, they, 75 up to 80, they, a lot of these fish that they had to swim away would actually turn up dead uh, several days later. And they don't all float. That was the scariest thing to me. This is proven by tag fish with transmitters. When they, you know, they, they stop moving, they know something's wrong. And they're finding them on the bottom. So according to Mark, for every fish, he said 90% won't gas up and float. So for every fish we see floating during a hot water period dead from mishandling, obviously there's, I'm sure it's not exact, but there's probably eight or nine other fish that have perished from mishandling as well. So wow. it's, it's, it's a real serious issue, and, and, and there's no denying that it, it occurs. You know, if you, if somebody said, Pete, I'm going to give you $50,000 for every dead muskie you can find, uh, I'm I'm going out looking for dead muskies whenever the water's the hottest. I absolutely know. And every every year you see it, because I have been involved in, in the conservation uh, issues for so long, I get maybe a, a better idea than just about anybody on the planet of when things are really going wrong. Because everybody feels like they have to tell me when mm-hmm. there's a dead muskie. And it was unbelievable in late June and, and early July. I mean, I had I had people from all over. And it even got warm up in Canada. Even though Canada's closed, obviously Canadians were still muskie fishing up there. And it was like, it was coming from everywhere. All at once. Mm-hmm. Oh, found a dead one. Found three floaters here. It's you know, there's there's no doubt about it that uh, that that heat is a real serious thing, and and I believe that's pretty much with with every species, uh, whether it's uh, whitefish or walleyes or or bass. I mean, it's it's just way more common to see uh, see dead fish that obviously died either immediately or from delayed mortality during the high heat. Yeah, I think the the only species that I see that handle it fairly well are carp and catfish. You know, some of your tougher fish like that, they just right. they, they seem to handle it. But you're right. I mean, I've seen it with walleyes and you know trout are extremely susceptible. You catch a trout in the middle of summer and try to release it, it's it's pretty tough, especially if you have to get it out of the Very water. Very much so. Yeah. So yeah, no, that's a good point. I I think about the. Uh, you know, the inexperience factor. Cause I mean, you're, you're, you talked about it earlier. You have a fish that's already a low density fish, so there's not very many. And so when, when someone catches one and, you know, just they've got it out of, out of the water for five minutes to get their social media post, you know, and their picture. And then 
put it back in and then you you know it's dead within a few minutes because it's you know it's just totally expired at that point but um, I think it is important for people yeah. to understand the handling procedures and what they should be thinking about if they want to have more of them around. Yeah, and that, it's it's so true. It's it's really you know from what I've seen over the years, I just, that's why I just stopped doing. It. I I can't enjoy it. Totally ruins it for me. If if I even a fish that eventually takes off, if if that fish has a doubt in my mind that it made it, it, it ruins it. That's just like what we were talking about earlier, you know, screwing up and <laughs> messing up a big fish or something like that. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather not uh, catch it, you know. It, it, it ruins the experience for me, so I just stopped. I stopped all all filming, uh, uh, you know, of, of muskies uh, with John Gillespie and, and some of the stuff that I still do with my YouTube, I, I just refuse to do it because that I. The other thing is, you know, you're 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 trying to show the joy of fishing when you're doing the fishing show, mm-hmm. and 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 I I can read it in myself when I have doubts about the health of the fish. It's like you can just tell I, I you know I, I'm I'm gone. I'm I'm not myself. <laughs> It's it's really kind of interesting, and in, in watching my own videos over the years, so that was one of the things that convinced me to to get away from. It. Uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's it, it's it's not a good not a good situation all around. One other thing I should mention too is the you know the out of water handling and any extra handling when you get in those you know kind of the the in between range, the higher water temperatures in the upper seventies that I talked about. Uh, it's so important to minimize that time out of water, and a standard procedure in recent years has been uh, getting precise measurements with bump boards. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is a very precise way of getting a measurement, uh, but it's generally done in the boat. And when when you're talking critical temperatures, it, it, it's gotten to be somewhat of a standard procedure with people if if you are going to musky fish in the mid 70s or so i really really recommend not not getting those measurements anymore especially if they're in boat it's number one it's obviously extra time out of the water but what can happen and even with people that are good at handling fish a certain percentage of those fish when you go to lay them down on a bump board when they lose that vision in the eye they'll They'll get excited and, and react negatively and start thrashing at that point, especially with people that aren't real used to handling muskies and pike. They might lose control of that fish. And if, it, if it's a warm water period and you lose control of that fish on the floor of the boat, I'll guarantee it's dead, even yeah. if you do get it to swim away. That's, that's just about uh, an absolute there. So it's just really, if, you, if you're going to fish in those kind of uh, in-between ranges where it's risky, I really, really highly recommend just don't worry about how long that fish is. It's really not going to change anything about your experience, and, and there's certainly no need to, to, to know down to a half an inch. There's floating rulers. There's lots of different ways. If you've handled quite a few fish, frankly, you can guess yeah. quite closely anyway. Uh, but, uh, but, boy... Uh, you know the the trend of getting exact measurements is fine. I understand, uh, but 
you really want to avoid that because it's just extra time and extra handling when the water gets warm. Yeah, I saw a guy, he had a kind of a neat system. He took a piece of, I think it was one inch diameter PVC pipe and he made it, I think it was like 65 inches long or something like that. And he filled it with with foam so it would float. And then he would set it into the water next to the fish just to get a general idea. I mean, that, that would, that would serve yeah. the purpose just fine. Oh, it does. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I, I think you can still buy the floating 60 inch rulers. I've, I've got a whole bunch of them years ago. I, best thing I ever did is just not measure them at all. I get a really good idea. And, but I always keep a floating ruler in the boat if I happen to have somebody that hasn't caught me and they're really excited about you know, actually seeing it, I, I usually end up teasing them because I, uh, you know, I tell them it's 41 or whatever I think it is. And then we measure it and it's within a, in an inch of what I said anyway, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but that is definitely a much safer way to do it. And, and, and that way the fish is, is in the water upright in the position they're supposed to be. And, and you're, you know, you, you're still going to be able to get a measurement. And, and you're not doing any damage to the fish that way. Yeah, and that, you know, for those of us out here in the West, it's really important to have a successful release because we have sterile muskies. I mean, they're they're hybrids, and, you know, the, they put them in, and they live for, what, 10, 11 years, and they die. I mean, they have a fairly right. short lifespan, so getting those fish successfully back into the water is very important here just because, you know, back where you are, they can spawn, but here they can't. So it's like it's even more critical in Wyoming, Utah, Montana, Colorado, places that have tiger muskie populations to have that successful release as well because if we don't, we don't have any fish. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's even more important. But, you know, like anything else, of course, they even if they reproduce and even if you got more stocking, and it takes a long time. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, uh, with a natural muskie in a lot of cases, the further north you go, the longer it takes, obviously the, the lifespan's longer, but so's the, so's the growth. So, you know, if you're, if you're taking a, uh, a 50 inch muskie out of the picture, uh, in the northern latitudes, you're talking 20 years. Yeah. You might have a fish in the water to replace it either by natural reproduction or stocking, but it's 20 years before it gets that big again. And obviously yep. it's. We all like to catch a bigger one, so yeah, it, it, it takes a long time, and it's really important. And 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 I can, I, I should point out that uh, you know I uh, <laughs> kind of aging myself here, but I started when catch and release hadn't even occurred right. with muskies. Uh, the first four year of guiding, four years of guiding, uh, it was just standard procedure. We killed them. I never, I never thought any differently. Our size limit was 32 inches. Wow. I finally wised up because of a buddy from Muskie Zinc, but, uh, and we started releasing them. It's kind of embarrassing to tell that story. He actually suggested <laughs> release, and I thought, well, you don't release those things. And he says, well, would you rather catch a big one? Yeah, I'd like to catch a big one. And, uh, well, that, you know, they get a little older when you let them go and they, and they get bigger. And, then, you know, embarrassingly, I hadn't really thought of that you know that's a pretty good idea and i started i started releasing the fish but uh boy i'll I'll tell you what growing up in those days with a 32 inch size limit i can tell you that very few fish 
snuck through because it, it was an absolute rarity to get a fish over 40 inches in those days. That was wow. a monster. And once in a while, you get the freak fish that I think in those days, those those were just uh, females that for whatever reason were wired into fishing open water or staying in open water and feeding on open water forage. So you'd get some of those fish that would stay out there and they wouldn't get targeted because people didn't know about fishing deep water ranges and suspended fish in those days. So if you would make it, but that size limit was so definitive. I mean, you catch your legal killing fish from about 32 to 34, 35. And the majority of the fish never got much bigger than that because we killed them. I mean, that's just what we saw. You'd, and it it was horrible comparatively, mm-hmm. especially size structure wise uh, in those days. And when and when catch and release started, I mean, there was no denying it. Uh, people around here that were like, "No way, I'm not going to do it." At first, uh, even the even the most hard headed had to admit it after a while. It was a gradual process, but. Uh, you know, you just started started seeing it working, and then they started installing some 40-inch size limits in some places. And next thing you know, there was quite a few of those 41, 42s, but not much over, you know. Yep. It was kind of interesting, and it, it all kind of came together, uh, some higher size limits. And to this day, you know, pretty much uh, 100% catch-and-release mentality. Uh, and, and that's why the topic now that's the most important is most people are willing to release them, but they aren't necessarily aware of how to do it properly, the tools and everything we've talked about, and then that you really got to be careful in that hot water. Right. We, we get those things solved, and, you know, you're still going to lose fish. There's no way that we'll ever get to the point of 100% success with catch and release because some fish are going to, swallow a bait and then once in a blue moon they you know i've even seen that in the cold water they will have a i'm not sure if it's a heart attack or what it is but i've had a couple of fish over the years that showed up dead i don't i'm not sure what even happened to them but you know you get them in the net and they're just they're not bleeding they're not i I don't know what it is frankly but uh apparently they can experience a heart attack or something like that as well because i've had it happen twice and one time it was 34 degree water in late November when I had to break ice to get out on the lake. Uh, uh, there was no damage to that fish at all. And uh, you could see uh, something. I, I remember I remember thinking something was wrong when I got the fish in the net looking at its eyes. Hmm. No problem getting the bait out. Pull it out of there and it, it was done. Just over. Wow. So, yeah, and things have changed over the last I would say 10 years, and you've seen this too, around the country, as far as muskies are concerned, there are a lot more, I guess you would say, strict regulations as far as lengths, um, you know, what the size limit is. And, you know, here in Wyoming up until, gosh, I think it was four years ago, Danny, he really pushed to to change the regulations because it was, you could have three per day and they had to be over 30 inches long. Well, (laughs) You know, those tiger muskies, they grow really fast. And if you get a guy who knows what he's doing on tigers on a good day, can catch three. And if he keeps coming back and doing that over and over again, you don't have a, a tiger muskie fishery. And it's it's kind of a bad deal on a couple of fronts. It's bad for the 
the anglers because the fish are gone. And then it's also bad for the biologists who had them stocked to control white suckers and carp because now the predator has gone. And so it's kind of a double whammy on the taxpayer and on the, on the fishermen. But I feel like it's getting a lot better now in Wyoming. They have to be a minimum of 36 inches and you can only have one. Um, I know Utah, I believe, I think it was this last year, a couple of years ago, they went to a catch and release only. And so um, it's been good to see that just because if you want to catch a monster, uh, you got to, you got to put them back just like you're saying. Um, Oh, absolutely. The other thing I wanted to ask is, you know, what are the biggest do's and don'ts of muskie fishing? Um, And and I know for me, the the ones I learned the hard way, I I told the story about pulling the bait out of one's mouth um, earlier. So now I very, I try to, remind myself, don't set the hook until you fill them. Don't set the hook till you fill them. Um, but what are some other things that, you know, for novice musky fishermen that when they do get that follow or when they do have that fish strike, what, what are some do's and don'ts? Well, uh, you know, from a, from a follow standpoint, uh, I, I think most people are aware, but, uh, you know, muskies love to follow, uh, more than any other water fish, and and will strike by the side of the boat without a doubt mm-hmm. uh, on a on a figure eight or a circle type maneuver. But uh, either either way, uh, change of direction, which I believe is what makes the figure eight or old work by the side of the boat. I I believe it's a reaction. Just my guess. Uh, I've always speculated that uh, the the prey now thinks that uh, you're there and you're gonna gonna eat me, and it's trying to get away. And that's the response that you want to try and trigger in that fish. That's why going going fast in circles on a figure eight, I think, is is really what makes things happen. It's a, it's an evasive maneuver by prey, and it'll it'll trigger the fish in a lot of cases to strike so uh, seeing a follow though uh, polarized glasses is an absolute and training yourself to be watching behind and below the lure and and looking for any kind of color changes or anything that could possibly indicate a fish is coming and depending on the lure type that you have that's that's one variable a lot of people don't really consider uh is every Every lure is a little different on how you might be able to trigger a fish. But one thing I always tell people is with with every different lure type, you should be able to answer this question in your head at that point of what are you going to do if you see a follow to try and trigger a fish? Mm-hmm. Because it's extremely important. One thing that's, you know, worked maybe the best over the years for me is uh is a zigzag type maneuver before I even get to the boat. If I know that fish is coming, it's very effective with spinners uh, and crankbaits. Uh, you can't do it quite as well generally with a jerk bait, but uh, you want to do something to trigger that fish, make it make it think you're aware of it, and, and you're trying to get away, or the lure's trying to get away. So having having an idea of something even if it's wrong is real important because people tend to freeze otherwise if they don't have that idea in the head of what they're going to do to 
to trigger that fish. And when I when I hit people <laughs> with that, in a lot of cases, they can't answer it. Yeah, they'll 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 put on a jerk bait or they'll put on you know what what are you gonna do? Are you gonna give it a wild jerk and pause? Are you are you gonna twitch it three times and pause? Are you gonna speed up? Are you you know what do you what are you gonna do? In a lot of cases, uh, people don't have that answer. So that's one thing to do, kind of in your own mind. And you know, that there's there's so many different variables that you have. Some baits are way more buoyant than others. That can be a real effective thing, by the way, to uh, to stop a lure and let it float up. Mm-hmm. But if it doesn't blow it up or it's neutral but anyway you gotta you gotta have an idea of what you're gonna do because if if you can get that fish to trigger before you get to the boat your odds your odds actually go off it's generally better to get them to hit out there and uh and you'd be able to see it and get a good hook set and you'd be able to fight the fish a little bit better so generally speeding up uh is going to be a, a better thing with a with a top water lure or a spinner type bait if you've got a real buoyant bait uh in a lot of cases some uh some real erratic twitches and then just killing the bait and letting it slowly rise up will be effective as well but then you know then be thinking all the time you know if that doesn't work obviously then you may want to try and and make a real fast maneuver towards the boat from there and then as far as the, uh, you know, there's a million things I could say, but the the, uh, the figure eights and O's should be practiced by the side of the boat. That's extremely important, too. Now, you have, uh, obviously, with crankbaits, you've got all different types of lips, so there's different, every, every lure is different in the speed you're able to maintain in a circle and the amount of line uh, from the rod tip to the lure. In a lot of cases, just the leader is, is all you need, but in a lot of cases too, a, a deeper diving bait, you may want to have a oh, two feet line total out, just the way that bait swings in the circle. But you should practice your boat side maneuvers, especially if it's a lure that you haven't used before. Get an idea of what you would do. Imagine that muskie is already there before you get in that situation. And, and you don't have any time to think, and especially if you haven't done it a whole lot and you're likely to freak out, <laughs> having practiced the circle and the eight by the side of the boat before you get a fish to come, it's just huge. It really is. Make sure you can do uh, a good circle or an eight with the bucktail without those blades stopping. Uh, the corners should be as wide as possible. Practice all of that when you... When you're doing a, a circle maneuver with your bait, make sure you come in close to the gunnel so you're able to stretch out as far as possible on those corners and make a big circle. The corners are generally key. That's where the strikes are going to occur is on the corners. And and if you have not practiced it with the different lure types, uh, you know you, you you might have the lure fly right out of the water if you if you're not aware of coming close to the gunnel mm-hmm. you you're going to stretch i've seen this a million times people see the fish coming they don't come close to the gunnel and they're excited and they just start pulling the lure and they get stretched way out over on the side and the fish hasn't hit yet and they just come straight back or stop they're just they're basically handcuffed they got no place to go 
fish doesn't know what to do. The fish is embarrassed. The angler's embarrassed. <laughs> it's not a good deal. You gotta, you really, really want to practice uh, the eights and O's before a fish comes with every lure, and and that and that way you have an idea what you can and can't do, and and it really, really makes a difference on uh, on getting those fish to, to trigger. Yeah. The biggest, I'll tell you this story, it's kind of embarrassing to tell the musky legend this story, but I'm going to tell you anyway, but um, Danny took me fishing this one time, and we, I, it was the day that I caught my first musky. So it was a successful day, but this, this part of the story is a little bit embarrassing. So we were fishing, and <clears throat> I, I was trying this big spinnerbait, and the one thing I had not learned yet was to pay attention, like you said, to what's below, behind you know, and watching your lure come up to you as you're coming to the boat to watch for follows and whatnot. And I just was in, you know, typical Wyoming fishing boy, you know, just throw and retrieve, throw and retrieve and not really paying attention. And so he said something to me and I picked up my bait out of the water and I turned to look at him and a tiger muskie jumped over my Minn Kota trolling motor out of the water to try to grab my bait because I hadn't left it in the water in front of him and I hadn't been paying attention and he missed, but it scared the crap out of me. <laughs> and I mean, it wasn't a big one, you know, it was probably a mid 30 inch fish, but it scared the crap out of me. And I, it, it got my attention. I'll tell you that. So after that, it was about 20 minutes later, I actually caught my first one on a figure eight on that lure next to the boat, but it was just, it was just so funny that that fish wanted that lure so bad. He jumped all the way over my trolling motor out of the water. <laughs> just insane. Yeah. And that's Isn't the, it crazy. It, it is amazing. Yeah. And they're so athletic. Like they're just an incredible fish. I, I don't think I've ever seen a fish with the speed that uh, a muskie has. And I don't know if you can talk about that a little bit, but I've seen them cover a, a 10 foot area in a millisecond. Oh, there's, there's no doubt. And that's, uh, that's actually why in a lot of cases, I, you know, the, the people's natural reaction to seeing a fish coming is, uh, is they want to make it easier for them. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's the, that's the worst reaction. That's why the, the speed up is, you know, especially with the faster moving baits, I guess, in general, like a bucktail, that's, that's something I tell people to, you know, crank faster, and if that fish starts coming, go as fast as you can, because you absolutely cannot keep it away from them. <laughs> and if you, if you trigger that response, if you get them to that next level, uh, they will get it. I mean, as long as, and that's where the practice is, though. That's where the control, practicing that fast figure eight and being able to control it is, is so key. But that is really what will will trigger them in a lot of cases. And, and, yeah, when it comes to speed, they've got plenty of it. There's no doubt. If, if they want it, they will get it. And uh, and it's, it, it's probably one of the most effective ways to get them. Now, that you know, sounds exactly the opposite with certain baits, especially floaters. But sometimes killing it and, and letting it rise will be the deal as well. But if there's a, a most consistent thing to try with any lure, uh, it's just flat speed. I've, I've seen it work with uh, soft plastics as well. Uh, I, the 
general reaction in the figure eight with those will be I'll, I'll generally kind of keep them erratic and kind of watch and see how that fish is responding. And a lot of cases you can get them to eat it right after a jerk and a pause and they'll do that. But if nothing else is working, I've had it work with tubes and, and, uh, and bulldogs and different baits where you just all of a sudden decide, okay, I'm going to treat this like a bucktail. And you don't twitch or do anything. You just rip it around in a circle as fast as you can. And all of a sudden, you see that attitude of that fish change. You can, you know, you can almost see them get stupid, right? Just looking at their eyes. It's kind of a neat feeling. I've, I've, called, I've called the shot a lot of times and rarely been wrong. Where I'll, Right before it happens, I'll, I'll be like, that one's going to do it. Because you can just see it <laughs> click in, man. And they're... Especially when it's that speed deal that triggers them. There, you know, you might not get them, but they're going to try. Right. There is no way they're not going to do it. And uh, I, uh, I got a funny story. I, I stole a fifty-two incher from a guy one time. <laughs> I've never seen a big fish going that fast and that excited. And what was really weird about it is we probably hadn't seen a fish in like four hours. It was fall and kind of dreary conditions you know for muskies anyway you know sunny no wind and all of a sudden this fish comes up out of the blue on the crankbait it looks looks pretty active and this guy just got excited he was actually a darn good fisherman but he did exactly what i was talking about with not doing the corners he wasn't mm -hmm. really staying close to the the gunnel and he he'd race off to the side and then he'd basically just do a 180 and come right back and I've got a spinner bait that was out three quarters of the way yet, and I'm watching all of this, and I'm coaching them, and I'm like, corners, corners, you got to go wider. And this muskie, they usually, if they miss once, they generally get embarrassed and swim away. Not this one. He was, he got a mouthful of water. I should say she, I'm sure, but it <laughs> missed on the far corners at least three times. Was trying about the time he. He'd come to the end of his rope, and then he'd do the 180 and come back, and that poor fish would miss. And it was so funny. I'm like, well, you know, I didn't I didn't actually say it, but I had been coaching him. And I see, here's my spinnerbait coming, and I just swung that right in front of it. <laughs> All of a sudden, that <laughs> fish saw that, and I just swung it right in front of his nose, and bang, <laughs> at the end of that. Said, well, that's what you get. <laughs> yep that's that's the way it goes so if you could share just like one of your top stories of you know musky fishing success maybe your proudest moment what would it be oh gosh i don't know that i have a necessarily a proudest moment i like uh, to ask hard questions on here yeah, well, that is a tough one. That is a tough one. There's been a lot of... Well, uh, I don't know if this was really the proudest moment. My buddy wasn't uh, all that excited about it. This was actually more of a fluke. I found out there was an individual rock a, a few days later, but the reason I got this fish. But uh, a lot of folks may be aware of the name Dick Pearson. He's a icon of mine, uh, one of the pioneers of Canadian shield fishing. And... Uh, he, uh, he and Doug Johnson were the guys that uh, you started hearing about muskies years ago in the in-fisherman days. And yep. 
and uh, and and both both guys are just tremendous pioneers, and I've been blessed over the years to fish with both of them and get to know both of them real well. And I was fishing with Dick Pearson up in Canada, and we're exploring a new lake, and we're and we're fishing this this rock bar, kind of a long thin piece, and we got a big fish on one end of the reef. And and one thing that I'll, I'll suggest, just to quickly di- digress, people always ask me, do you come back on a fish right away or not? And I generally try and make a judgment on whether or not a window is opening or closing. And that's just recent activity type of thing. So in other words, if you've already had somewhat of a window and then you raise a a really big fish after 20 minutes or so, or a fish you want to catch, doesn't matter how big, but... I common sense tells me that I'm probably getting to the end of the feeding window. So in that case, I'm probably going to leave that fish alone because I think I'm just going to educate it to all my lures. Now, on the other hand, if we've had a slow period and I feel like we're just coming into it, then I'm generally going to get back at that fish right away. In this particular case, I kind of felt like weather-wise and stuff with Dick, we're like, eh, before we leave, we better we better go back on that fish and give him a try. Funny thing is, we never saw that fish, but uh, I had a trolling motor that was kind of giving me fits at the time and, and not not uh, stowing very well, so I, it was one that you could just lift up. So I said to Pearson, I said, Dick, just just lift that motor up and I'll idle over there. We'll get a little north of the fish and we'll come back at him from a different angle. And he did that. He's standing up there in the, on the deck holding my trolling motor up. And I start idling along and I think, well, I'm idling. I guess I might as well fish. I had a bucktail and I pitched it out the back of the boat. I bet that blade spun about two seconds. And I had a, I believe it was a 51. Anyway, big fish. Hit it immediately. Wow. And he, he, he's standing there holding that trolling motor. And he says, oh, man. Here's the thrashing back there. Oh, man. And I got this great big fish. And then he went into this routine about, I see how you are. I see how you are. Get me holding this trolling motor. And then you're fishing. Yeah, I bet, I bet you'll never live that one down. Oh, uh, Boy, I'll tell you what, it was a long three days, the next three days fishing with him. He, he reminded me about that about every 10 minutes, I think. That's what good fishing buddies do. They they, they don't let those things go. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, one last thing that, you know, I know you've got things to get to, but uh, the, the passion for this podcast is really about getting, you know, our young people and you know, for me, like my spouse and different people like that, more involved in, in fishing and, and really trying to mentor the next generation. So if you could just give, you know, any kind of advice to our listeners on, you know, how to maybe approach getting somebody to be involved in musky or pike fishing, that would be awesome. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I I would say, uh, you know, number one, back to the importance of, uh, you know, all of us doing all we can to uh to get good at the uh, the handling aspects and, and, and be aware of those things uh, and keep the fishery healthy because there's one thing about it. I mean, if you're going to get anybody involved, young to old, it's, it, it's a lot more fun when the when the bobber's down. If you know what I mean, the bends and the rods. So then, and that is 
that is truly all about the health of the fisheries. You can't catch stuff that isn't there. So that's uh, that's real important as well. But then, the, you know, the other thing I would say is, uh, is you know, read the fish or the fish. Read the people to a certain extent, like I like I talk about reading the fish. You're gonna have when you when you when you get the, especially young people out for the first time, uh, you know, and 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 kind of be aware of their enjoyment of things. It's real easy as an adult and someone that's that's really into fishing to uh, expect the people you're taking out to think like you and, and enjoy things like you do. And, and in some cases, it's all real good intentions uh, because you really want them to get into it. And you really want them to catch a fish. You know, in, in most cases, more than you would like to catch a fish yourself. You want to mm-hmm. show them a good time and get them into it. But you really got to be aware of, you know, what what the fish activity is and what the tolerance is of the person. If the if the kid is wired like like me, uh, that I the way I've been all my life. For the little girl I talked about at the start of the show that was on the dock on her own, you get a you get a person like that out there. They're you know they they might go all day and and want to fish even harder than you. But uh, you know remember that you know it's it should be an enjoyable experience. So make sure there's plenty to do with kids. It's always good. Make sure they got plenty of plenty of liquids to drink and. And, and snacks and and just uh, you know try and try and get them action, but definitely do not push things too far. Uh, that's that's one of the biggest mistakes I've I've seen over the years, and I've been I was very aware uh, from a guiding standpoint because uh, you know a lot of people were trying to get their their uh, spouse or their or their kids or whatever into fishing. Uh, you know, by by guiding, and there was a lot of cases where I even suggested, but you know, you, you could just kind of see that in a lot of cases they didn't want the the kid or the new person to be able to take a break. They weren't really reading the enjoyment level and the intensity level, <laughs> and uh, definitely you don't want to push them far. If a bite's tough or something like that, you you might want them to catch a fish, but that you know. That you you wanting them to, and the reality of the situation uh, is is a totally different thing. So you know, I obviously extend it when everything's going good, the fishing's going good, the the person's enjoying it and still into it. But uh, you know, when they when they stop having a good time, it's uh, it, it's time to stop. Uh, that's uh, that's really the way I've I've always tried to deal with it. Now my I've got a son who's twenty now. And uh, he still likes he likes fishing with dad, and and I I I, I got to say I'm fairly proud of the way I handled it over the years. He uh, he's not wired like me. He enjoys it, mm-hmm. uh, but he's not wired to be super into it. And that's one thing that I saw early on. And uh, you know he's at college now. We don't see each other all that much, but he's he still really really likes to go fishing, and and enjoys it very much but you know he's not a he's not an absolute hardcore so we go out and and well i guess we know one another now at this stage but one of the things i know i would have turned him off early on if i would have done what i kind of felt like i wanted to do at the time you know me being (laughs) a rabid angler 
I would I would read my son, and and when he wasn't into it anymore, I'd say, okay, that's enough. I, in some cases, I might you know drop him off and let him go do his thing and go back out, but I would never I would never push it too far. And uh, if it's going good, let them enjoy it. And uh, if it's not going all that good, and and they're not into it anymore, definitely don't force it on them. Sure. Uh, that's, that was that, that to me is real important, and and I've seen it in a lot of cases, like I say, in the guiding days and, and, and stuff like that. Just make sure it's an enjoyable experience, and uh, that 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 is just means an awful lot, you know, to me. Yeah. So for the audience, if they want to get more information on how to fish for muskies and more information on you, uh, where do they go? Oh, as far as where to go, it's probably uh, the best place would be just my website petemaina.com i've got uh, there's links on there to uh basically everything the uh social media the youtube page uh, all those things so, uh, that's yeah. probably the best single source yep and for, uh, for those of you yeah for those of you who are interested in some of these topics like on handling muskies what kind of gear to use you can watch videos of pete going through you know, step-by-step step what you should have, what you need. Um, so definitely check out PeteMana.com so that you can get that information. And and Pete, again, thank you so much for coming on today. I know uh, I'm extremely grateful uh, to have you on as somebody who I've been following and watching for around 20 years now. It's 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 just super awesome to to have you on here and get to visit with you and and listen to you share your your expertise with the rest of us so thanks again for coming on oh you bet i enjoyed it all right and yeah, for good for, experience thanks yeah, for having me yeah absolutely and for all the listeners please again uh, don't forget to check us out at ragcastoutdoors.com uh, if you want to help the podcast and help spread it out to your friends please go like and share and subscribe and We will come back again, um, hopefully shortly, and hear stories from David on his Northwest Territories uh, hikes and (laughs) hopefully hear a success story. So we will see you guys again next time.